This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Christy is an advanced placement and international baccalaureate literature teacher. And Gary is an APIB psychology and history teacher, but most importantly, he's my husband. Last week, Gary caught me off guard by throwing out this little fun fact about my life that I wasn't prepared for, so today I'm returning the favor. Just so you know, Gary was born and raised in a little town outside Kansas City, Missouri, called Lawson. It was in this town that he met his first love, the guitar. Today, he's a professional musician here in Memphis, Tennessee, where he plays guitar with some great musicians because, as everyone knows or should know, Memphis is home of the blues. Well, I'm going to return a favor, and I'm going to give a new fun fact for everybody. Oh, no. People may not know that Christy was raised in Brazil and Africa. Just think on that. (laughs) So, today we are excited to delve into the weeds of our second book, Fahrenheit 451. If this is your first time to check in with us, uh, Christy looks at these stories from the perspective of a literature teacher. If you're exploring with us the great can of what we call Western literature, then subscribe and come along for the ride. Gary looks at what they may mean historically, psychologically, and culturally. And don't forget, if you have a particular book you'd really like to hear about, or if there's something we left out that we absolutely should not, please let us know on our Facebook or Instagram page, because we'd love to hear from you. So, coming to you from Memphis, Tennessee, let's move right into What's So Great About Fahrenheit 451. The title of this episode is, Is There a Downside to Fun? Christy, how are we going to organize our discussion today? There's a lot going on. That's really true. In the Scarlet Letter, we basically went chapter by chapter, and we spent a lot of time trying to dissect the language because the language is so complex in that book. But this book really is organized very differently. The plot is absolutely the least thing going on, and that's very plain. This book is very satirical, 
and not in the sense that it's making you laugh, but it's making some serious criticisms on our culture and our society. And so we need to go ahead and let's get the plot out of the way and talk about what happens. So then we can really talk about what Bradbury wants us to focus on. Let's talk about the characters and end our discussion with these big thematic ideas that really are arguments that Bradbury is introducing, these really crazy and prophetic ideas that he seems somewhat whimsical and flippant about, but they're really deep. When we left off with the last chapter, the big question for Montag was, are you happy? Montag scoffs at the question. He chafes at the question. He's having to deal with happiness, which is an abstract idea, and it requires self-analysis and introspection, all of which he's incapable of at this point. So anyway, after his meeting with Clarice, he comes home to Mildred. Mildred's asleep in the icy cold bedroom. She has accidentally, at this point, uh, overdosed on sleeping pills, and uh, he's going to have to deal with that. There are jets tearing overhead because there's a subtextual theme of a war going on in the background. This we'll get more into later on. Eventually, he has to call some mechanics, for lack of a better term, that have to come and pump out Mildred's stomach from her accidental overdose on her sleeping pills. The next morning, uh, Mildred is clueless and starving that any of this has occurred. Her main concern is she wants this fourth wall she wants the fourth wall for the uh, purpose of entertainment and distraction to be built in their home, never mind the fact that she's nearly died. The whole time, Montag is turning over the whole uh, detachment of the whole experience of these guys coming to pump out her stomach. So they move on. He sees Clarice again. So we have this constant contrast between the the connected Clarice, who is really... in integrally connected to her environment, contrasted with Mildred, who's always out of touch. Then we have the scene where he comes across the mechanical dog, which is threatening to them, which we'll see more about later on. Then we go back to Clarice again. And then after another exchange with Clarice, we end up with Montag, Beatty, Stoneman, and Black, the, the four firemen who go to burn the old woman's house. This is where things really begin to change and pick up speed. In the course of burning the old woman's house and confronting the elderly woman, uh, she makes a quote about Master Ridley. And uh, that's gonna, that quote will stick in Montag's mind and haunt him and bring about all kinds of other questions for him. So after that, the house burns. During the course of this whole thing, Montag has stolen a book. Afterwards, he goes home. He's upset. He's a mess. He's crying. Uh, over the incident with the burning of a woman's house and the woman herself dying. He's disconnected from Mildred. He's fixated on this woman in the burning house. And he begins a discussion with Mildred about their relationship. And Mildred can't remember how long they've known each other, how they met. It's just more disconnect with this person who's supposed to be the significant other in his life. And in the course of that discussion, Mildred offhandedly throws out that, by the way, Clarice is dead. So... Montag now is going to be sick. He won't be able to go to work the next day because he's distraught about so many things. His world is collapsing in on him. And then the chief fireman, Beatty, shows up at his house to talk. And the conversation with Beatty is where everything begins to get interesting and where all the themes emerge. That's basically what happens. So 
plot-wise, he meets a girl, talks to her a couple times, burns a woman, upset, goes home, talks to his wife, doesn't want to go to work, boss comes. <laughs> okay, if we want to condense it, as they do in Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, but uh, there are, and you kind of hinted at this along the way, there are a couple of, there's lots of stuff that we're supposed to pay attention to. And of course, the most obvious is this, the fact that Clarice and Mildred are absolute foils. They're, and really, it's because that they're so opposite that we see this awakening kind of going on in uh, Beatty's mind and his heart. And he meets this little girl, and she's not like Mildred, and uh, he wonders what's me- different about her. And then we, we, as readers, are supposed to notice what's different about her. And the first, the immediate thing is uh, Clarice doesn't care anything about technology and of course Mildred reminds me of every teenager in America she never takes her earbuds out she goes to sleep with her earbuds in she walks around in her earbuds in and we see that today at school not to digress but I have kids that don't take them out all day long they may unplug their phone uh, they say who knows if they do but the earbuds never come out and that's exactly uh, her she uh Clarice loves to talk. Uh, Mildred finds that boring. Um, Clarice is interested in everything. And Mildred is bored with everything. Clarice sits and looks at people. She looks them in the eye. And Mildred doesn't do that. And she has this weird, irrational fear of books that we see really intensify at the end of the chapter. What else? Is there anything else that I missed that you would say? Well, there's just a couple telling scenes that highlight what you're talking about, one of which is when when Montag is in all this emotional distress. He comes home. He wants to have a a discussion with Clarice. She won't turn down the noise of basically the televisions in the next room that are blaring. He asks her to. She seems annoyed. She walks in, but doesn't turn them down, but walks back out as if she did. <laughs> so she has absolutely no regard for uh, a conversation with Montag or engaging with him or discussing anything he wants to discuss. Which really is creepy because I feel like, and you can tell me if you think this is, this is where I think Bradford is really prophetic. That's more and more people every day. They just are not interested, just like her. They don't care. Uh, and what do they care about? Well, she's clearly interested in the family, but if you notice, he goes to great lengths to show that the stories on television are not deep and philosophical. They're as light as, as you can possibly imagine. They're hideous. He talks about them having clowns. Everyone knows, no disrespect to clowns, <laughs> but they're not really good. No one likes clowns. They're not interesting. I don't, I mean... Maybe they are, but I think he's using them as kind of a uh, a hyperbole of what is superficial about the television. Mm-hmm. So we see that, uh, but at the end of the day, what I think is most interesting is that she pops all those pills. And that's what she's doing. She wants to forget, and she takes them, and she takes them, and she takes them, and she forgets, and that's the point. Am, am I wrong? No, I agree. Yeah, detachment is the theme, and detachment is her goal, and actually detachment is her passion. 
And I think that's interesting because everybody follows their passion. It just so happens that for some people, their passion is inactivity. And for Mildred, her passion is inactivity and feeling nothing. That's her goal. That's what she works hard at. That's what she spends her energy on. And the technology is facilitating that. Uh, And that's where we see this big emphasis on technology. I don't know. I mean, I know Bradbury hated technology. He didn't like television. He didn't like cars. And that was his personal biases. But the things that he saw that technology were capable of, all the worst is coming out through her. The chemical technology. But it's, but, and that's a small part. And we see that here with the hospital. And it's clearly, they're trying to say that it's it's clearly pervasive. There's not even doctors. They just have a, a little drive-by dude that comes by and pop, you know, basically cleans out your stomach and your blood, which is interesting because you're pretty soulless and they put someone else's blood and it doesn't matter because everyone's blood is the same, but that's another point. But the other technologies are enabling people to be their worst versions of themselves in a way that maybe you couldn't have done in a more connected place that required more effort to live. Well, along those lines, what makes great literature great is the whole idea that they tap into some part of the human experience that lots and lots of readers identify with. That's why you talk about the plot not being as important as the um, the themes. And what Bradbury obviously has very much done is he's tapped into that. And, of course, this book is written in the early 1950s, and here we are in our current time, and the technology is way advanced, but it's still the same effect. We have people who are still tempted to become irresponsible and disconnect from their environments. And I really think that's the point that he's trying to make. That's more important than the technology. A superficial reading of this book will say, oh, technology is dangerous. I don't know that technology is the most dangerous thing that he's talking about. Technology enables us to indulge in what I think he thinks is the most dangerous thing. And the most dangerous thing is the seductive idea that you don't matter. Mildred doesn't see herself as very valuable. Look how she's so flippant about her own death. Uh, So she's not responsible. She's not responsible for herself. She doesn't take responsibility for her relationships. She doesn't take, and you see her friends, they're not taking responsibility for their children. They throw them out. Uh, They're not responsible for their husbands. They're not responsible for their world. And you know that they're not responsible for anything because there is a war going on. And you mentioned it before, this reoccurring motif of the jet bombers and the war in the background. It's always there, but it's nobody's responsibility. We don't care. We put in the headphones, and that's not our that's not our business. That's not our problem. It's not even it's not even our place because our role in life is to pursue pleasure. That's what we're here for. That's what we're devoted to. As you said, that's what they're pursuing, and that's the idea that he's really criticizing. Is the pursuit of fun, is the pursuit of pleasure the end all of life? I think that's a great point, and I want to summarize what you said and make sure we bring that home. Um, What you're saying is that Bradbury is not necessarily saying technology is the worst step. It's using the technology to become irresponsible. You're using this the seduction of irresponsibility that he's getting at. You're disconnected from your morality. You're disconnected from your community. You're disconnected from relationships, and that's very seductive. And 
the technology is simply the, um, the facilitator to get you there. Yeah, I think this idea that if I'm not responsible, I don't have to worry about morality. So I can go to a fun park and smash cars and drive fast and flippantly blow off the death of a little girl that I happen to know. It doesn't matter because it's not my it's not my thing. It's not my fault. It's not, you know, that's someone else's deal. And so I don't I don't have to care and I don't care. It's fascinating that Bet and Bradbury's building a, a dystopian community through the vehicle of isolation. Yes, yeah, and technology makes that happen. So we see uh, Mildred kind of personifying everything that's yucky, and you're not supposed to really be seduced in the way that she is. You're Montag. You're questioning. You're supposed to say... You as the being the reader? Yeah, you as the reader are supposed to say, I don't know, this this feels off. Uh, but yeah, you don't really... Um, you don't really judge it entirely because it is... There is good things about it and there's a lot of things about it that we honor and we really do value in our culture. Um, he kind of hates on sports a little bit. and I love sports. Uh, he hates on, which I find super interesting, um, technology in the classroom. In their schools, they have four hours of film teacher. So it's really technology driven. <laughs> and we're supposed to be, every year I have to have lessons on more and more and more technology. Use more of it. Use more of it. And that's considered to be a good thing. And, and it's not a bad thing. I, I mean, he says it is. But it's certainly something to discuss. It's interesting what you said about technology in a classroom. For anybody listening who is not a classroom teacher, we cannot explain to you the depths to which we have been drilled on to include technology. We have people who just really believe that technology is the answer to uh, everything in education. And at the end of the day, it's not. At the end of the day, it's people investing in people, and that's how people move along academically. The last point that uh, the, that Bradbury really ends with on this first chapter, he, he creates this character named Mildred, and she's clearly vacuous, and she's clearly uh, not healthy because, I mean, she's trying to commit suicide, and she's clearly irresponsible in a lot of ways, but she's the product of a particular environment. And the environment that she's a product of is the environment that we all live in and that we all enjoy. And there's things about this environment that we all, really, to be honest, really can't do without. And so he ends the chapter with this, this guy coming in, and he's going to make the case that the way that the world is, is good. And then he's going to tell you why it's good. And so she it creates the problem in the sense that she makes Montag ask the question, is there anything wrong with just being numb? Is that and pursuing fun? Beatty is going to say, no. That's where you find fulfillment. You find fulfillment in fun. You find fulfillment in pleasure. In fact, we can't have world peace until everyone agrees that we need to have fun and that needs to be the right thing. So he's going to make this argument 
for Beatty, for in front of Montag, because Montag has stolen this book. Beatty knows about it, and he's going to come in there to kind of address this issue. Which is interesting because it's the conversation where Beatty comes to talk to Montag where we we get the real summation of Chapter 1 and the real meaning out of it and what launches us into Chapter 2. And so they're going to have this discussion where um, Beatty is going to lay out all kinds of ideas. And there's a couple that I want to quote out of the book that I thought were extremely interesting. Beatty's talking. He says, if you don't want a man unhappy politically... Don't give him two sides to a question to worry him. Give him one. Better yet, give him none. Then he goes on to say, talking about individuals, cram them full of non-combustible data. I have to stop here for just a moment. Anybody in the education field will have an automatic reflexive reaction to the word data. But I digress. Anyway, he says, cram them full of non-combustible data Chalk them so damned full of facts that they feel stuffed, but absolutely brilliant with information. My first reaction to that phrase was the Internet. Now, I've got a question for you. Do you think the Internet is making us smarterer? Well, no. And I want to go back to that data thing. It's not just education. Every field in the world, we have data, 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 data on everything. And we're all told to analyze it, analyze it, analyze it. So we can have this economic perspective of how everything is supposed to work. And he's going to say that, well, that that's empty. It's like reading the manual of a, a how to put together a, a refrigerator. That's, in fact, that's the equation that he kind of makes. But you're empty, but you get to feel brilliant because you know so many uh, data. Yes, you know numbers and facts and stats and all those kinds of things. Then he goes on to say, then they'll feel their thinking. Like they're, they'll feel like they're thinking. They'll get a sense of motion without moving. Don't give them any slippery stuff like philosophy or sociology to tie things up with. Anyway, he says it just leads to feelings of inferiority, and we just can't have feelings of inferiority. Oh, no. He, and you talked about, you referenced the Internet, I think he kind of references Twitter. Of course, he didn't know about Twitter. Because he says, you know, we had a book. Then we cut it down to like a two-minute book. Then we cut it down to a column. Then we had to have two sentences. Then we had to have a headline. Then we had to have in midair. So basically, we don't. all we have to have are like minute air modules. Which, to me, that's Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and he said... Everything, digest, digest, digest. In other words, condense, 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 condense yeah. information. School is shortened. Discipline is relaxed. Philosophies, histories, language dropped. That's what we have. We have very little philosophy, very little um, literature. It's all science, techno stuff. Get the how-to, not the whys. And he says, why learn anything? Say pressing buttons, bullying switches, fitting nuts and bolts. Let me fix this. And, of course... Uh, that's where we at as a culture. And he's going to say that's where happiness lies. He's going to say not everyone is equal on the outside or what they look like, but they can be made equal on the inside by taking it all out. And that is a very important point and something that will get developed in Chapter 2. That whole concept that the goal is to make everybody identical and conformed 
and equal on the inside for the express purpose of not having any type of confrontation or conflict. And Bradbury introduces this, I think, really symbolically earlier in the book because he has this motif of snakes, and you may not have noticed it. He has an adder and a cobra and a snake, and I told you that archetypally that's a symbol of renewal, and the snake is what's going to come in and drain all the blood out of Mildred and put new blood in her. The idea is we're going to take out somebody else's blood, put in your blood, and it's all interchangeable because on the inside, we're all the same. We all, it doesn't matter uh, what you want to like. We're going to make you want to like what we want you to like because if we all agree, then we can all be happy. Yes, and all of that that conformity and identity is being done for the goal of happiness. And it's so important that Beatty is going to talk to Montag and basically tell Montag, we're heroes for doing this. He says, we stand against the small tide of those who want to make everyone unhappy with conflicting theory and thought. I don't think you realize how important you are, how important we are to our happy world as it stands right now. He says, don't step on the toes of the dog lovers, the cat lovers, the doctors, the lawyers, the merchants, the chiefs, the Mormons, the Baptists, the Unitarians, the second generation Chinese, the Swedes, the Italians, the Germans, the Texans, the Brooklynites, the Irishmen. So basically every way that we have decided to categorize ourselves on that ACT checkbox, he's going to say, we can't afford to indulge, he says, all the different groups. We need a nice blend of vanilla tapioca. So that we're all kind of absolutely just the same. Each man the image of every other. Then all are happy, for there are no mountains to make, to cower, to judge themselves against. So happiness now becomes the lowest common denominator. Yes. He says, colored people don't like little black Sambo. Burn it. White people don't feel good about Uncle Tom. Burn it. And you see this idea of even history. We want it to be better. So let's just erase the stuff that we don't like. The idea, let's tear down everything that could possibly be controversial and let whitewash it so that everything can be peaceful. Which is really ironic, and I know that Bradbury does a lot of irony in this book, because revising your history, and whenever I use the word revisionism, I have to spit. I have to go... <laughs> It's the dreaded R word because revisionism means we're going to go back and retell the story of history for the old story of history in the past so that it serves our current political needs, whatever those political needs are. So that's what revisionism is, and that's what they're advocating right here. Let's revise out the history because history only causes conflict. Right. The old days, the firemen were putting out fires. We want them to make fires, so let's just make it that. And so he says this, fire is bright and fire is clean. Burn all, burn everything. If you don't want a man unhappy politically, don't give him two sides. Let him forget there is such a thing as war. If the government is inefficient, top-heavy, or tax-mad, better it be all those other people that worry about it. Again, don't make him responsible. You know, they'll be happy. So bring on your clubs, your parties, your acrobats, your magicians, your daredevils, your jet cars, your motorcycles, your helicopters, your sex, your heroin, more of everything to do with automatic reflex. And of course, you're supposed to go, whoa, that just got real. Sex and heroin, because it kind of escalates it to stuff to 
by the end of it, you're supposed to say, that's too much. <laughs> and then he asked, because he's asking the question, where do we find meaning in life? Where is human fulfillment? Is it down all these avenues that we're told to go down? Is it really great to have fun? Or is there some value in the human struggle? Is there some value in conflict? Is there some value for disagreement? Or is it really important that we all support the same candidates, that we all agree the same thing, that we all accept the same values and truths? And of course, Beattie is making the case that of course it's an important, but you're supposed to see, whoa, you know, this is what we call irony. Right. The, the, the reader is supposed to not necessarily agree with what the author is and writing. I would like to point this out, too. If you have been raised in the American political tradition, you're supposed to reflexively dislike all of that. As your, your, um, these, these senses of uh, democracy and participation and free speech and all those kind of things that you've been in, had ingrained in you since childhood is supposed to reflexively dislike this whole monologue. Well, and you're supposed to see that it's too much. He's going to go on to say, sometimes I drive out all night and come back. It's fun out in the country. You hit rabbits. Sometimes you hit dogs. And you're supposed to say, that's cruel. (laughs) Well, it is. You know what it also is? It's displacement. Displacement means I have anger over here, but I can't vent it towards the object of my anger, so I vent it on somewhere else that's defenseless against my anger. In this case, dogs and rabbits. And then, of course, he ends up by saying, happiness is important, fun is everything, which is really a very childish idea, but a lot of people, it's not that they say that they believe that, but they're living their lives as if they did, and that's what he's attacking. Well, take a moment to tell us about dramatic irony. Explain that concept and how we're applying it here. Dramatic irony is when, well, the word irony means the opposite, so, like, if I, it's a verbal irony, I say one thing, but I mean the opposite. If you say, oh, that's cute, and you really mean that's ugly, and I'm just saying it in a way that is mean, that's verbally ironic. Dramatic irony happens in stories in that the writer is writing something, but you, as the reader, know that the opposite is actually true. So, like, in a horror movie, you know that this one character is evil, but everybody else in the story thinks that he's a really nice guy. That's dramatic irony. So in this case, he's building it because he's saying all these things are wonderful and you're supposed to think, no, they're not. That's too much. No, that can't be right. What's wrong with that? And those are the questions that Bradbury wants really you to ask yourself. And he's really not even asking about this particular context. He's asking about how about in your life, how you relate to technology, how you relate to other people, what is driving you, and is that healthy, and is that going to take you to where you want to go, assuming that you want to have a life of meaning and fulfillment, which is what Montag wants. He thought his life was meaningful. He thought he had fulfillment, but when he got to thinking about it, he found this emptiness, and when he saw Mildred on the floor, he realized she's empty too. Well, interesting thing about Mildred, and I want to bring this up before we move on. Mildred, and this is a little bit going back to the beginning of the story, where Mildred wants the fourth wall, and she calls it the fourth wall. Now, people who are in theater know what the fourth wall is. The fourth wall in a theater production is the audience. And when you're a character in a play and you turn and address the audience, 
you break the fourth wall. Basically, I never thought about that. <laughs> well, you basically break the magical spell of the play that's going on because the actors realize they're in, within three walls performing and they're supposed to be experiencing the small piece of real life on the stage and the audience are just observers. So um, it's interesting. I don't know if Bradbury did that on purpose, but if Mildred gets her fourth wall, that seals her off from the audience and everybody, and she's she's completely isolated. I may be stretching right there, but I, I don't know. I think that, that there might be something to that. Never mind the fact that she didn't care that her husband was going to have to work like an entire year to pay for it. <laughs> That's true. So um, one other thing I want to throw out, too, as Beatty is having all this discussion about the value of everything and morality and our, our heroism and preserving this way of bland, vanilla, tapioca life he thinks is so wonderful. Um, Beatty knows history. And I'm reading this. The woman who uh, sets fire to her house makes a historical quote. And it was new to Montag, but Beatty was like, oh yeah, that was from such and such. This this was a guy uh, that was burned at the stake as a heretic. You're talking about the Master Ridley quote? Yeah, the Master Ridley quote where he says... they were being burned at the stake. And we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, and I trust shall never be put out. Yes, and that was from 1555, okay? And uh, at one point in the book, we're about uh, 2022, I think, and maybe in the next chapter somewhere there. But anyway, I want to point this out. Um, it really caught my attention that Beatty knows history. You don't know history unless you're reading. And in any dealing with history... History has no meaning until you're able to deal with the abstract and able to compare themes and change over time and things of those nature. So Beatty just gave away to me that he's got more access to something that Montag doesn't have. Well, there's always the people in control, and I think he represents kind of the powers to be. And I find this true in every uh, power dynamic, in every relationship. You really can't control somebody if you... If, unless you know more than they do. And the thing about the internet, you know, it feels like you have a lot of information, but you really don't. If you look at, like in our country, Fox News and CNN, they have the same stuff. You don't see a lot of diversity of views. And there's, so there's a lot of data, but less ideas. This guy wants to keep them himself. So yeah, I feel like he's reading, he's studying. He probably knows about the war. But uh, it's not in his interest to let anybody else know because he'll lose control. And control is important. He's the one that's programming the mechanical hound, which is you know the way that the government is going to enforce control. It's not needed. They they're going to point out even a little bit later that you know that's more of a spectacle. But they do have that power, and they can come in when they need to, and they do come in when they need to. And nobody even really cares. And I think that's kind of what disturbed him about the woman that was, was dying. She was willing. Why did she care so much? And that's why right. he started to think. And really, I think he kind of over overplays the importance of books. He thinks they're, they're magic. And they're not. Uh, and Bradbury's going to suggest that they're not. But he thinks they must be because why else would you give up all this other stuff for something that doesn't seem to have any kind of value at all? Well, what we have is a a woman of passion willing to die for something in a whole sea of people that are passionless, not hard to stand out. 
And I want to point out all the other firemen completely ignored her and wrote her off. But for some reason, there was something inside Montag where he it appealed to him, this idea of passion and this idea of purpose and this idea of connection. So I want to throw a couple of last ideas here as we begin to wind things up. Um, we've got Beatty who's going to have this great quote, Not everyone born free and equal, as the Constitution says, but everyone made equal. More discussion on that later on. But it brings us to the idea that according to Montag's world that he's living in, Conformity is peace, and total conformity is total peace. you have any concluding thoughts for us? Yeah, I think Bradbury is, again, there's some irony there. He's introducing this idea as if this is truth, and you're supposed to say, I don't know, that doesn't, something about that seems wrong. But yet, if you look at the way we live our lives, there is so many forces out there that want us, that are forcing us. It's embarrassing if you don't like what everybody likes. It's embarrassing if you appreciate a candidate and value a voice that's independent than the ones that everyone else seems to have. And so there's so much social pressure. He's talking more than political pressure. This isn't really a political book as much as it is a social book. The social pressure to conform is immense, and he's drawing that out. And the argument is... Well, we'll just have more fun if we can agree. And thus brings us to one of the main themes of Fahrenheit 451, which is this pressure to conform, which is the the element of the human nature that has made this a classic piece of literature. So we began today by summarizing the plot of Chapter 1, going through it very quickly. But we spend most of our time talking about the themes of the book built on these discussions between Montag and Beatty and the meaning of life and the meaning of not life and all those kind of things. Um, Those are the important literary and psychological highlights. Chapter 2, if you want to call it that, uh, is going to talk about really what is the value of books, which isn't really books, what's the value of abstract thinking, and he's going to answer that question through a new character that we're going to meet next week. Okay. Chapter 2, The Sand and the Sieve, where Bradbury discusses and argues the value of abstract thinking versus concrete thinking. So, if you enjoyed being with us today, subscribe. Come hang out with us again next time as we look at Fahrenheit 451. Peace out! up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 